Henry Cloud wrote a book called Necessary Endings. And I love that term. Instead of thinking about divorce as a failure, because I, I, I felt like it was a failure because it's a failed marriage. So it's a failure. And since it's 50-50 is what everybody thought, then I'm a failure. So I took that label on and and I love that term that he came up with of a necessary ending when it's um, it's something that really needs to happen. And you use the term alternative ending, mm-hmm. right? Can you tell us more about that instead of the classic happily ever after? It's your alternative ending. Right, right. Well, um, you know, I think we're conditioned again, socially, culturally to believe that happily ever after means the relationship and the romance that lasts till death do us part. Um, And I can see the beauty in that. One of the things I hated when I first began to specialize in divorce support is becoming known as the divorce lady, you know, or the divorce coach, because the the, the kind of presumption, default presumption is that I'm not pro-marriage. The reality is I am pro-marriage. I love marriage. Healthy, happy relationships are one of the most beautiful things I have ever witnessed in my life. But there is something equally, beautifully, powerfully inspirational about a woman or a man who isn't fighting to save their relationship any longer and instead rechannels and redirects that healing energy into himself or herself. That is incredible. I mean, it is so, it is so powerful. And I always, I always, I talk about this a lot with my groups of uh, divorced clients what a beautiful message to give to our children that when something is harming us, damaging us, destructive, dysfunctional, all these things, we are actually powerful enough to reach out and make a difference, make a change on behalf of our own well-being. Isn't that a beautiful way of expressing the free will and the sense of self-care and self-responsibility that God's given us. And so yes, alternative in that it isn't the classic um, choreographed hallmark type of ending, but still beautiful and powerful in its own right. I love it. I love it. When my son was little, I walked in um, and my mom and him were watching beauty and the beast, the old, you know, cartoon version and little chip, the the teacup says to his mom, like as everything is whisked into beauty and wonder, wonder and everything, you know, he changes from this uh, abusive, really beast who's basically holding her captive into the prince magically. And he says, mama, are they going to live happily ever after? And she says, yes, honey, they are. And I, I was divorced at the time and a single mom. And I almost threw up all over the couch. Mm-hmm. I was like, this mm-hmm. is the garbage. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I do think that that is the reason why those stories, why we love them and why they resonate with us is we want that to be true in human relationships and happily ever after. But it really is a reflection of the the restoration of all things when Jesus returns. And it really is a reflection of the of the the oneness and the beauty and the perfection of heaven. That's why we love those stories. But how realistic are they in real life? Now you've seen and I've seen marriages restored. It happens, mm-hmm. but there are times where it doesn't matter how much that betrayed spouse, how hard they work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what they do. That the other spouse is not going to recover. They're going to continue to act out, to gaslight, to be emotionally destructive. Right. And there's nothing you can do about it. And there is no, they're going to live happily ever after is not an option. I mean, they could stay together and live miserably ever after. Right. 
But um, it's just so sad how conditioned we get to thinking that that is the only way for there to be a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And I know I have experienced like the restoration of my life even before I got remarried, but like in just being just me and God to know that I am a whole person. I am enough. I have enough. I can be actually happy and joyful as a single person. So here is a question that we didn't talk about, but how happy is your life now and fulfilled? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. Catches me by surprise, but I like it. Um, my life is very happy. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The first two years after my divorce, my second divorce, I cried myself to sleep every single night. It's like when my walls came down, when I was done with whatever commitments I had for the day, I just broke down. That's how my grief came out. Yeah, I yeah. woke up every single morning crying my eyes out before my walls went up, right? And I remember so many mornings laying there in my bed thinking, how the hell did this become my life. And just that sense of surreality, almost horror is not a wrong word to attach to that. And so that was the first two years. And I share that openly because I want other people who are still suffering into year two, you know, because sometimes year two is harder than year one. It's like year one, you're still going through the adrenaline. Everything's changing. There's lots of drama. There's intensity. Year two is more when that quiet awfulness sinks in for most of us. So, you know, I remember it was during year three, I started recognizing, okay, I'm not waking up crying every morning, some mornings, but not every morning. I'm not going to bed crying at night, some nights, but not every night. And, you know, it was really toward the end of that third year that I started realizing that I'm happy more than I'm hurting. And that's a pattern I actually remembered from the first time. And it was like, okay, this, this, this is how I at least respond to this kind of life-changing pain. So for me, for the longest time, my happiness or my search to, to, um, find myself happy more than I was hurting involved a lot of alone time. I don't have children. I work from home. My life is really quite insulated and, and, um, introverted. And that's been very, very helpful and healthy and healing for me. And over time, I have also found a lot of depth and dimension in connecting with others. Again, COVID had a lot to do with that. You know, I tell women after my divorce, Work was my rebound relationship. I'm going to be honest about that. Work was something in my life that I felt good about. It was going well. I was doing good things. People were happy and healthy because of the work that I was doing. And it was really very satisfying and fulfilling. But with COVID and so much of my work life shifting, it's like, okay, what happens if I tone that down a little bit? actually create time for myself on the weekends and maybe even start exploring new romantic connections. And it's been a beautiful development for me. I will say the idea that I could feel more happy than hurt again felt impossible during those first two years. 
And I am so grateful to have the perspective of being able to look back at that and other people who held that space for me too, when I couldn't see it, to believe that that was possible. I don't remember the exact statistic. Gretchen Baskerville recently did a survey. I want to say it's like seven out of 10 people say that their lives are happy again, two to five years after divorce. So again, I don't know that I have that number exactly correct, but it was a really encouraging statistic, you know, to the point that you're saying. Yeah. To know that it was normal, that it was taking that long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like year one was a lot of repair and trying to logistics, figure everything out. Mm -hmm. And then year two was when you really got into that second phase of mourning and remembrance. Yes. 100%. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, um, what, what are your recommendations for women who are listening, who are newly divorced Mm. and they need to begin to rebuild? One thing you said that was profound that you wrote on your mirror was the only way out is through. So not circumventing the pain, right. By over, Mm -hmm. over shopping or over, you know, gambling or whatever, all the things that, that do all the dopamine, even my, my blipping phone is like so addictive and like, you know, just scrolling on social media and, and not that, not that that's not fine to do sometimes, Mm -hmm. but there are ways that we can numb ourselves into oblivion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in, in an attempt to survive the pain, alcohol is a, is a favorite of many people to dull and numb the pain. So what do you, what do you recommend? Like, how do you cope with this kind of pain without then developing your own addiction or your own really problematic behavior on the side. Yep. Well, going back to that, having that really small inner circle of people that helps a lot. I mean, I have my therapist and my BFF who got the play-by-plays. They got the text from me every single day with updates. And, you know, I asked them to look out for me for certain things. Um, You know, am I, am I numbing out too much? Am I, you know, being too self-indulgent. Um, am I overworking? Things like that. They were able to kind of give me that outside awareness and perspective about things. Um, one of the biggest breakthroughs I had when it came to kind of letting go of the old stuff and reaching for the new stuff, I went to a, a training specifically about traumatic grief. And during the, the training, the presenter talked about how important it is for us to honor what was as a way of letting go and moving toward life without that person or that place or that thing. So he said, you know, when someone dies, he recommends sleeping with a piece of their clothing or something like that to just kind of give yourself that chance to say goodbye on your terms. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I never have figured out what to do with my wedding rings. I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend a night sleeping with my wedding rings on. Something that felt so counterintuitive. Like I'm not married anymore. I'm not going back to that. Why would I do that? But I needed to have that re-encounter with something that was very symbolic on my terms, not just ripping them off in a moment of trauma, but actually honoring them for what they meant to me. And then making a decision about how to move forward from that. So that idea of being able to not treat the grief as a problem to get over or to get past or to make go away or to shut up, but to actually leverage it and let it be part of that healing process. You know, part of my divorce involved packing up my life 
and moving halfway across the country. That was very, you know how much I loved California. It was Mm -hmm. very hard. It still is some days. But what that meant is I brought a ton of boxes with me, right? And in those boxes was everything that I wasn't ready to let go of back in 2017. So to this day, some of them are still in storage and I'll pull one out and I'll open up the cover and I'm either like, okay, I can deal with that today. I can decide what to keep, what to throw away, look at what to maybe give to somebody else. And there's other days I open up those boxes and I shut the lid and I push it back and I say, no, not today. That is not, that that box is not for today. Um, And so, you know, just trusting your gut to keep yourself moving forward, but not press or push or pressure or force it. Because one of the I love, someone taught me this years and years ago, it's okay to make a course correction. And if you're not where you want to be today, you'll get another chance another day, (laughs) you know? So that idea that, you know, it does happen in baby steps. My clients know I say this all the time. Baby steps change the world. Baby steps are what get us closer toward making bigger steps, right? And so, you know, to let those baby steps matter and not beat ourselves up if we're not ready to take a giant leap forward. Um, that helps a lot. Mm. That is so good. Um, anything else that you have to recommend to women who are newly divorced after betrayal to -hmm. rebuild? Mm -hmm. What is your recommend? Here's my, here's a specific question. What's your recommendation about dating again? Ooh, good question. There is no one size fits all. That's what I'll start with. You know, Absolutely. you'll hear lots of people say, wait a year, wait two years, wait three years, wait until this way back. Two things that I think are really powerful. When it comes to dating again, it often involves less about looking at how much of somebody else you're ready to integrate and internalize into your life and more, how are you showing up? So when you think about, let's start even just when you think about the idea of a new relationship, what's happening in you. So I know speaking for me, I knew I was ready to maybe start thinking about dating again when I was on an airplane one day, spend a lot of time on airplanes. And uh, there was just a very nice, normal, everyday Joe guy and a guy sitting next to me. And for the first time in years, I wasn't, you know, recoiling. I wasn't pulling away. And I even got this crazy little thought, you know, I wonder what happened if I just reached over and put my head on his shoulder, right? There was just that sense internally that somehow, you know, this person that was this gender at this kind of proximity didn't scare me away. Didn't, didn't, you know, yeah. Induce that trauma response in me. I knew I didn't want to be sitting across the table from someone on a date and still grieving my ex you know, like actively, intensively, like that cry myself to sleep. I wouldn't want that in reverse. I wouldn't want to be dating someone who was feeling that way about his ex or her ex. And so, you know, that kind of recognizing when you've, I I never say get through it, but like had a breakthrough, like you feel there's a, a surge forward where you're able to invest more forward than grieving what was past. Um, be open-minded because the person you were when you chose your former spouse is not who you are anymore. A lot of things change. You are an entirely different internal, emotional, psychological, relational person than you were before. You've got more baggage. You've got more wounds. You've also got more tools and you've got more strength. So you are a completely different person nothing's off the table. You can be a different person in your next romantic life than you were before. Um, and that's a really individualized process. Mm, for sure. 
Oh my goodness. Um, any other recommendations just in general for new newly divorced women to rebuild? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go on to talking about how this impacts the person with the addiction. Great. Fantastic. So there are a lot of good resources out there right now. Um, resources on grief, resources on assessing your own self-identity, learning how to be someone different beyond the trauma, Looks about uh, books and, and resources about abandonment, because ultimately relational trauma like that is, is a big form of abandonment. Um, if you're dealing with any kind of uh, high conflict issues in your divorce, whether it comes to uh, parenting or co-parenting or other kinds of that post-divorce abuse stuff that happens, um, One Mom's Battle is a really good resource. I already mentioned uh, Gretchen Baskerville. Um, Find child mental health specialists if you're worried about how this is impacting your kids. It's a very unique niche of practice and it's very powerful. So lots lots of different stuff. It's out there. And if you're not sure, reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with resources. How's that? That's awesome. And we'll include Galen's information in our show notes. Also, another one is child-centered divorce. It's a blog and I love their resources because they help parents learn how to navigate a divorce in a way that is the least traumatic for the kids. Mm-hmm. And, the best. and that again, there's an ideal. I mean, there's an ideal that both parents are able and, and, and willing to work through things that way. Sometimes that ideal is not realistic depending on trauma, addiction, Absolutely. abuse, all kinds of other factors. So that's my little caveat on that one. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So what are the recovery and relationship tips that you have for a sex addict who's Mm -hmm. divorced because of their addiction or infidelity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question because there is that counterpart, right? I most often get a chance to work with the women, the partners after betrayal, um, but sometimes I get the opportunity to work with the guys they they are left behind also. Um, I think at at its most basic, sick. I would go back to what I said earlier about how beautiful it is to fight for yourself and your healing, even after you no longer have the opportunity to fight for the relationship. You do not need to let that relationship rupture be the defining or the ending chapter of your story right? Mm -hmm. The same way that it is so beautiful for a woman to keep fighting for herself and her children after divorce, it can be just as beautiful to watch someone committed to recovery, learn from what happened, use that and leverage it to make course corrections as necessary and keep fighting for yourself and your recovery because you don't need to let it sabotage everything that you still have ahead of you in terms of the work you need to do. You know, one thing that I think is really important is to recognize that for for someone in recovery who believes in repairing the damage, right? Repairing the the wounds or the ruptures or the um, wreckage that they've created within their life and relationships. Making amends is part of your own healing process. Is it healing for the other party? Sometimes, but that's not its primary orientation point, it also has a very healing work to do internally with you. So when it comes to making amends to your former spouse, your family, anyone else involved in the situation, think and get creative about how you might be able to do that even after your relationship ends. I'll tell you this, my first husband and I, we went through a period after divorce where we were not in contact at all. He was going through emotional stuff. I was going through emotional stuff. It was seven years later 
When we sat down and had one of the most healing conversations I have ever had in my life, the first words out of his mouth were, I am so, so, so sorry. At the time, I thought this was the only way things could be. Um, I wasn't as medicated as I needed to be in terms of mental health and and issues related to that. Um, I am so, so sorry this happened. And I'm so, so sorry I did this to you. And I remember sitting there knowing that it wasn't my job to make him feel better about that. But when we parted ways that day, we kind of left it as we were married to different people now, you know, both and none of us, neither one of us was like, let's go back and try to undo the, the damage that happened. But we were like, how can we acknowledge this and respect each other enough to go off and be better spouses in our second marriages? You know? So my point is the healing doesn't always come immediately, but if you're able and willing to stay in that repair posture, um, sometimes it happens later than sooner, but, um, but sometimes it, it can happen still. Yeah. That's a miracle. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's really amazing. Well, Galen, thank you so much for joining me today. I am going to put Galen's information and how you can get in touch with her in the show notes here. And I know all the things you're sharing are going to really encourage our audience, both the people who are listening, who've gone through a divorce, those who are considering going in that direction, and those who have friends and family who've gone through a divorce and they need, um, just some insight into what this experience is like and how to best support. So actually, let me ask you one more question based on that last thing is what, if somebody's listening and they're like, Oh, this isn't, it's not me. I haven't gone through this, Mm -hmm. um, but I love somebody who is going through it. What do you recommend to them to best support their person? Yeah, that's a really great question. So my colleague, Sarah Morales gave me the one best, most beautiful piece of feedback I ever got when I was asking that same question, kind of as part of a research project for other helping professionals dealing with this population. She said, the one thing that we need so badly and the one thing we almost never, never get is unqualified love and support. Not, I love you and I think you should do this. Just I love you and I'm here for you. You know, that sense of knowing, acknowledging, just really recognizing nobody else is going to live with the impact, the results of that decision. Therefore, nobody but you gets to make that decision. And so when you love someone who's going through that, remember that it's really all about trauma recovery is all about restoring to the victim power of choice. So honoring that autonomy, honoring that need, maybe recognizing that most people, when they end up divorcing, it's not because they don't still love their partner. It's not because they haven't fought and wouldn't, you know, um, aren't still caring and invested. It's literally a matter of, I can't, not, I don't want to. And just giving them that kind of open-hearted space. Also, don't be afraid to reach out and ask a divorce professional. You know, this is what's showing up. And what I'm observing in this person who I love, is that normal? You know, uh, what would could be a right thing to say? What could be a wrong thing to say? Kind of personalize it a little bit. There's definitely room for that and, and help to be had in that. That is really helpful. Thank you so much, Galen. Uh, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And please do take a second here to go and rate this podcast, um, write a review for us so that more people can get the help they need from the Living Truth Podcast. And we'll see you next time.